You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. They seem to really understand how the retailers have been protecting themselves and saying, okay, well, if you built a fence around this or you've, you've put a lock key on this piece, well, I'll just go around to the other side door. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, a gentleman named Bennett. He is Chief Customer Officer at Signified. We're talking about their recent report about a fraud ring. But first, a word from our sponsor, Know Before. Where would InfoSec professionals be without users making security mistakes? Working less than 60 hours per week, perhaps. Actually having a weekend every so often. We get it. User behavior can be a challenge. But users can also be an InfoSec professional's greatest asset once properly equipped. What do we mean by that? Well, stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before on that very question. All right, Joe, before we dig into our stories this week, we've got a little bit of follow-up here. What do we got? We do. We have John, who writes in with a little story. He says, hi, Dave, Joe, and Jen, who is our executive producer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John wants to provide a little bit of background. He has a bachelor's degree in computer networking and information systems management, a master's degree in information security. He listens to our podcast every week and has for years. He works in identity management and access management for a large multinational bank. Uh-huh. Uh, well, well, he John. says he knows <laughs> phishing, hacking, and social engineering very well. Yes, indeed. During a team meeting last week, my uh, I'm just going to start reading. Yeah, okay. During a team meeting, my colleague told me that as part of a new rollout of multi-factor authentication, we would be receiving an email in the coming weeks to confirm our MFA setup to ensure that there's no interruption when the rollout goes live. Hmm. Common, right? Yeah. When you start building these systems into you know, building these systems to be more secure, you're going to to try to roll that out. Yeah. Uh, today, I received an email saying, click here to confirm your MFA. Honestly, I was holding my daughter when the mail came in, and I was reading it. While I was reading it, uh, she became fussy. I was amazed at how quickly the mail came after being told about it. So I thought I'd confirm my MFA and then put the baby down for a nap. Mm. I clicked the link and fortunately got saved by Firefox saying the link looks suspicious. Wow. I went and looked at the email again and realized that it was from a non-company address and had the time crunch statement of, you'll be locked out if you don't confirm by next week. Hmm. I fortunately never put in my credentials, so I passed the test, more or less. But I got pretext by my colleague and went to ask him about it and if he knew about, uh, knew about the test. Turns out that it was just a lucky timing of our CERT team conducting a test at the same time as the MFA rollout was planned. Hmm. Thought I'd share that. Even when you're in a rush and the mail looks like something you're expecting, you should still take the take a second to ensure the sender address and the URL is real before you click. 
Yeah. Okay. So fortunately, uh, John got saved by the by the Firefox uh, link or Firefox uh, notification that the link was suspicious. Right. Uh, this was also from his cert team, um, which is condu- I, I don't know. This sounds like it might be business miscommunication. Mm. Right. I don't know that I'd run this test while doing that, or maybe I would. I don't know because it's harmless, right? You're, it, it is a real attack scenario. This is what attackers look for. Exactly what attackers look for. Yeah, yeah. I yes. I I guess in this case it seems uh, it was coincidental. I would. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how sporting it would be to run a uh, multi-factor phishing test while you were rolling out multi-factor. Yeah, right? well, <laughs> I mean, and everybody knows about it. Yeah. yeah uh, it, I don't, you know, I, I guess you're, you're not setting yourself up for good feelings of, of trust and honesty among your team if that's your strategy. It's like the, all the ones where the, you know, the, the company sends out a phishing test at the end of the year that says, good news, everybody's getting a bonus. Right. Right? I mean. And there's no bonuses. Yeah. That's the worst part. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But you fell here's let me slap you on the wrist for yeah. uh failing that test. Yeah, that that is a that particular test is one I would definitely leave to the bad guys. But this one I think I think is good because I think I'm gonna disagree with you on this one. Th- that this is sporting. And the reason being that he works at a large multinational bank. Chances are information about this rollout has leaked to the bad guys. Mm. Uh so I think it's good to prep the team. I, I don't think you take metrics on this, right? Yeah. I don't think you take metrics or ding people on it. But mm. I think that you use this as a teaching moment and you say, this is what the bad guys are going to do. Uh, we, we think they may know that we're rolling out the multi-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. The other thing that uh, I think is noteworthy here is that part of the reason that he went down the wrong path is that he was distracted. Yes. Yes, by taking is. care of his young child. That is uh, that is one of the things that uh, Drs. Lee and DeBura at the Information Security Institute did some research on hmm. uh, in the past, and they found that, yes, being distracted does, in fact, make you more susceptible to a phishing attack. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, don't have young children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to disagree with that. <laughs> they grow up so fast, Joe. Yes, and but it's then great. they give you grandchildren, and it's wonderful. <laughs> I was just saying to a friend of mine recently who who has uh, very young children, and they were, you know, sort of as as new parents do. They were they were asking, "When does it end? When <laughs> does it end?" And I said, "The great thing is that uh, not only uh, there comes a time when you can say to them, go feed yourself,' but right. there also comes a time when you can say, go get me some food. Right. <laughs> and they will bring you back some food, and this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. A good good reason to have children." All right. Well, our thanks to John for uh, sending that in to us. We do appreciate it. And, of course, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? Dave, again, I have two stories because they're both very short, Mm. uh, which is a a problem. When I go looking for these stories, I can't find a good long story that's involved. Okay. Uh, That's all right. I don't know why. But the first story comes from CNN. Uh, and I don't know why it's under politics. It should be under government, but it's by Sean Lingas. I hope I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, scammers pose as tech support to hack employees of two agencies last year. Government agencies. Government agencies. Okay. Uh, and this the story doesn't say which agencies they are, but they are uh, they are uh, federal employees of government agencies of civilian government agencies, uh, and CISA. That's the Cybersecurity Infrastructure 
Security Agency, the NSA, and the Threat Sharing Center for State and Local Governments, known as MSISAC. Mm-hmm. And ISAC is just a way to share information uh, in a certain industry. And the MSISAC is the multi-state ISAC. Mm-hmm. Um, the goal of the scam appears to have been to hit both private sector and government agencies to trick victims into sending the scammers money. It was unclear uh, if that happened in the case of the federal employees. Uh, it's interesting that it's unclear. I think you should be able to find that information out. Huh. Um, I would like to know if these federal employees, first off, what they were going after. Yeah. Because it sounds to me like this may have been, um, uh, I'd like to know, for, I'd like to know who, who was targeted, what agency was targeted. Mm-hmm. Uh, the agency said they were concerned, uh, such hackers could sell stolen information to government backed spies, which is true, mm-hmm. right? It's an espionage attempt. Uh, but this is a civilian effort, but that doesn't mean that foreign national, foreign intelligence services are not interested in civilian activities of our government. Mm. You know, the espionage game is not just about, uh, you know, the military stuff. Right. And, and it's the state department is a huge target and that's pretty much a civilian agency, Mm. Mm -hmm. right? Or a civilian department. It's not an agency. It's a department. Mm. But they were coming in by saying, Hey, I'm with tech support. Give me a call. And these guys called them. Right. So, right. Uh, and then they were, they were told to go to a malicious site and download some software. Mm. So bad news all around. Yeah, absolutely. What's the other one? The other one is more of a, uh, a personal story. And it comes from People Magazine from uh-huh. Anna Kaplan. Okay. And uh, it, the headline of the story is, 36-year-old woman accused of romance scam to swindle $2.8 million from elderly Holocaust survivor. Wow. <laughs> what? I, I, I have a sentence in my head right now. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> okay, good. But I, it was on, on, the, on the nature of the character of this person. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> this person's name is Peaches Sturgo. Uh, huh. She is from Florida. And how did she find this guy? Well, she went on a dating app and connected with him on the dating app. Hmm. And then she said... Hey, by the way, I've got a large sum of money that I've won from a lawsuit uh, from a car accident. But my attorneys won't release the funds to me because I owe them money. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> right? And she talks this guy into giving her $27,000. Wow. On the first go, or $25,000 on the first round. This was back in May of 2017. Got my numbers mixed up there, Dave. Okay. Um, it's... Uh, it continues, she, she continues on to essentially get almost monthly checks, often in increments of $50,000 from this poor guy. Wow. Uh, she has essentially drained this guy's bank account, and he is now uh, having to move out of his apartment in New York City. Oh, It's terrible. Yeah. Terrible what they've done. I hope they can recover some of this because naturally when you're a human being that does this kind of thing, you're going to go out and spend frivolously. And, and this woman is no exception. She had a laugh. Uh, a, the, the indictment says she, she lived a life of luxury with, with the millions she received from the fraud. She bought a home in a gated community, a condominium, a boat, numerous cars, including a Corvette and a sedan, a suburban rather. Hmm. Uh, during the course of the fraud, she took expensive trips, staying at the Ritz Carlton and spent thousands of dollars on expensive meals, gold coins, and bars, which are essentially fungible materials, right? Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. still have value. Jewelry, Rolex watches, and designer clothing. 
the designer clothing and the cars and all the food, that money is essentially gone. But they may be able to get some money by recovering the gold bars uh, and the coins and maybe the Rolex and the houses. Yeah. I think they can certainly liquidate those and and give the guy back some of his money. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, this article says that it was discovered when the man who was being scammed told his son about the arrangement. Yep. And that was a- as he was running out of money, he told him. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, th- this goes, this reminds me of what you do with your, with your, with your dad and how you have uh, the ability to monitor his bank account. Right. On the regs. So if this guy's son had seen the first $25,000 payment, he may have gone, hey, what's going on here, dad? Mm-hmm. And stopped the guy from losing, you know, $2.8 million. Yeah. If you have $2.8 million, $25,000 is not that big of a loss for you. But like I say frequently, these scammers are going to just keep hitting you up for money until one of two things happens. You realize it's a scam and you stop sending them money or you run out of money to send them. Right. I wonder if they ever met, if this was all done remotely. The story says that she was in Florida. In Florida. She's, she's from Florida. He's in New York. Right. Uh, it doesn't really say, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It is. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, To your point about being able to monitor your uh, loved one's bank accounts, um, one of the nice things is, for example, I have um, my father's bank account set up so that if a transaction above a certain size occurs, I get a notice. So what what that means is I'm not getting the day-to-day just going about his life sorts of things, you know. Um, So I'm not getting... um, alert fatigue, <laughs> right? right, from all the day, day-to-day banking stuff. I suppose there's a little bit of risk there where, if, if, for example, someone were to come after my father in small increments, yes. then I wouldn't know about it. But um, right. certainly, you know, somebody, $25,000 or something like that, uh, I, would, I would get that right away and uh, hopefully be able to head it off at the pass. You just never know. Yep. Hmm. All right. Well, we will have links to both of these stories in the show notes. Uh, My article uh, this week comes from Wired, uh, written by Matt Burgess, uh, and it's titled, A Sneaky Ad Scam Tore Through 11 Million Phones, Uh, Some 1,700 Spoofed Apps, 120 Targeted Publishers, 12 Billion False Ad Requests Per Day. This is a campaign called Vast Flux, uh, one of the biggest ad frauds ever discovered. Um, are you familiar with the uh, the attack technique called fast flux? Have you heard of I, that? I have not heard of this. Okay. This is a new one to me. I recall us reporting on it a while back on CyberWire. Um, and fast flux was a way, I believe it was a way of um, like obfuscating IP addresses. Like, mm-hmm. So you, it would appear as though... Uh, your requests, your interactions were coming from a broad array of IP addresses rather than a single one. Mm-hmm. And that cuts down on the ability for your actions to be detected. I see. So the researchers are calling this a vast flux, and, and it's a play on the name fast flux, which is the part of the a type of attack that they're using here. Right. So let me back up here and just sort of describe what's going on. You know, as we know, we live in this online app economy uh, and this online um, advertising economy. So if you or I or anybody goes onto a website or a Google search or pretty much anything we do that has ads these days online, and these days that's most things. Right. 
when you log on to a site, quite often there's a bidding process that takes place among the uh, ad companies to put their ad in front of you. And part of that is based on the information they have about you, where you're located, the demographic information they have about you, all that kind of stuff. So what these uh, bad actors were doing was they were actually purchasing ad space uh, with legitimate ad networks, but in their ads, they were inserting uh, bad code. Uh, I believe it was Java code. Uh, I can't remember if it was Java or JavaScript. Let me see if I can get it here. Probably JavaScript. Yes. They were inserting uh, malicious JavaScript code, um, and what it would do is display multiple ads that were stacked up on top of each other. I see. So you would only see, as the user, you would only see the topmost ad. Right. But this could stack up up to 25 ads underneath. I see. And they would get credit and get paid, get paid for showing you 25 ads. For showing all of those ads. After only showing one. Correct. So they'd pay for one, pay for one placement, but collect on the placement of 25 ads. I see. This is bad for the user uh, because it'll drain your phone battery faster as it processes all of these ads. These ads tend to be processor-intensive. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I care that much about that. But uh, and in fact— as, you know, as a user, you, you probably wouldn't. Right. It, it doesn't seem like they're going after the user as their victim here. Right. This is, this is a front-end ad broker, right, or ad, ad seller. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're saying to all these different back-end engines like— Google and Amazon and uh, Trade Desk, all these different back-end people, they're going, we'll show you an ad or we'll, we'll show an ad, one of your ads. Right. And they're not showing the ad to the user, but they're collecting the money from these from these companies. Right, right. All right. So they were doing 12 billion ad requests per day. Right. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting that they were primarily hitting iOS devices, which... Hmm. I think we, we tend to think that most of this stuff happens on the Android side uh, just because it's a little less of a walled garden. But... I wonder why they're going, why they were hitting iOS devices. Because it's just HTML and JavaScript. I mean, it's it's simple enough to do. Yeah. But. Uh, Don't know. I, I, I wonder if they're taking that market because those people demand, if you're on an iOS device, do you command a higher price as, as a, uh, as an advertisee, as someone to get, to get shown an ad to? You do, yes. Yeah. I believe in general you do. That's probably why they picked, they targeted uh, iPhone users. Yeah, that makes iOS sense. Users. Uh, this article says that uh, it, they believe they hit about 11 million devices. Um, and then, again, the device owners really wouldn't have known this was going on. It, it right. didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't infecting their device. It was just sort of taking advantage of their device to, to uh, run this scam. So uh, these researchers uh, reached out to the ad companies and let them be aware of it. Uh, they've done their best to uh, shut it down, and evidently, um, for now, uh, this vast flux campaign has been stopped. Uh, it'll, it'll be back. <laughs> and the reason I say it'll be back is because this is very difficult to detect. Yeah. Because if you think about this, they're going they're, – they're selling their ads or they're selling ad space to a whole bunch of different, different buyers. Mm-hmm. And all, if I sell that, if, if I say there might be 25 buyers they're selling to, 
And they're saying to everybody, congratulations, you won the auction. Now give me my money. <laughs> right. And, and that's how this works. The user never sees it. Uh, the only way to check it is to have a researcher analyze the HTML of every web page on the internet and find out if anybody is doing this. Well, I also, I mean, I place some of the responsibility on the ad networks in that they should be doing a better job of taking a look at the, this JavaScript code that's coming through their system, that's passing through their systems, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know which, which advertiser, I mean, these guys are front end, right? No, I, I think, no, they're, so they're buying space through ad brokers to place these I ads see. that contain the JavaScript. So they're middleware. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see. So you're saying that the guy, the front end guys should be watching this a little bit closer. Correct. Yeah, right. That, that, that is who, who bears the responsibility for this. Yeah. Yeah. At least for catching it. You right. Know, the, the, there's, to me, that's there's for, a shortcoming right, the, there. The defensive responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The offensive responsibility always lies with the bad guy. Right. And, and I, I want to make that clear. I'm not blaming the, the victim here. Yeah. I wonder, too, if there's anything on the OS side, you know, the, for, for iOS and Android, if, if there's anything that they could be doing to look out for this sort of behavior. I, I suppose these ads are kind of self-contained and, um, you know, and anything you do to stop this could also break it. But Right. I mean, it, it's, the thing is that it's really not the it's, – it's a, it's a web developer or a web – browser developer mm-hmm. that you're talking about here. That's who you're, and, and in the case of iOS, that it's only Apple, right? Right. With WebKit, is that what it's called? Yeah. And in the case of uh, Android, it could be anybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, like I have three browsers on my phone. I have the DuckDuckGo browser, I have uh, Mozilla, and I have uh, the, the default Chrome browser, which I almost never use. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, who's going, I, th- I, I think you will see something like this in the Chrome browser because that's owned by Google and they are one of the people that are probably victimized by this. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you might see things coming out of Chrome in this. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, again, uh, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from friends of the show, Chad and Jen. Oh, uh, super listener Chad. That's right. Super listener Chad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got a great story. Can I tell the story? Sure. Okay. So uh, I was actually playing uh, Fortnite with Chad and Jen. And uh, all of a sudden, Jen goes, Joe, is Lisa yelling for you? <laughs> and hmm. I'm like, I don't know. Is she? But my wife was downstairs and uh, she could hear <laughs> Jen. Jen could hear Lisa but my my headphones actually block out everything. Plus, they fill my ears with the uh, the events going on in the game. <laughs> so the people you were playing with could, could hear, hear your her. wife calling you, but you could not. But I could not. Brilliant. It is. All right. You, you've gamed that very well, Joe. I did. Yeah. Uh, but Chad writes in, Hi, Dave and Joe. As you know, I'm a regular listener, and I try to pass the things I learn on to my wife when I can. She sometimes is trapped in the car with me and has to listen. There you go, Chad. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Do that with as many people as you can. (laughs) Sure. Either way, uh, she has gotten pretty good at spotting scams. She asked if I could pass this email on to you. Jen has several music services, so this almost caught her. Thanks uh, Thanks for all the good info. Love the show. Talk to you later, Chad. 
So this is uh, an email that Jen received. It's called Renewal Details. Mm-hmm. So Dave, why don't you go ahead and read this email? It says, Renewal Details. It's all caps, so they're right. yelling. And two exclamation points, That's not right. one. So very exciting. Yes. Thank you for your payment of $141.34. Music lover, Jen's email address. Thank you for subscribing iTunes iMusic application. The annual renewal fee of your plan upon expiration of your contract will be invoiced based on the information on your registered details with us. We are happy for you for the day of consumption of full one year, 12 month subscription. <laughs> the day of consumption? <laughs> yeah, total amount paid $141.34. You will not be charged for your complimentary trial. Once it ends, your subscription will renew at $141.34 unless you cancel by Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. Enjoy listening to iMusic with your family and friends and groove on all kinds of music of your choice. In case you are dissatisfied or do not want to continue with this subscription or cancellation, please reach us to our help desk team at 1-800 within a 24-hour period to stop it. If you do not subscribe to the iMusic in-app services, then simply reach out to our help desk team to cancel. Thanks, the App Store team. Now, the uh, phone number is separated by a bunch of dots, like periods. Right. Um, to get through the, the spam filter, mm-hmm. which apparently it did very effectively. Uh, Dave, is iTunes iMusic a product? Is that actually a thing? iTunes iMusic. iMusic is – no. There's Apple Music. Right. There's no iMusic. Okay. I didn't <laughs> but think I, so. But I could see how people could be confused with or tricked by this because right. Apple does tend to put i in front of everything. They do indeed. Yeah. iPod, iPad, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. iTunes. Um, so this is interesting, and I, this kind of dovetails in with our message from John earlier. Yeah. That this comes into Jen as something that would be um, – she would be expecting – Right, because right. she listens to multiple music services. Now, I will confess that at one point in time, I actually had two music services. I had Amazon Music and um, uh, Spotify. Mm-hmm. But I How just decadent. Kept, huh? How decadent. How decadent of me, right? I canceled the Amazon <laughs> Music because I noticed I'm never using this, and that's just eight bucks to help Jeff Bezos play Rocket Ship. So. Okay. Um, I'm going to cancel it and just stick with Spotify, which I have uh, the family account on so that my, my wife and kids can all listen to it. Right. Um, so this email comes to her... And it, it fits with what she would expect. But fortunately, she spotted it as a scam, probably because of the terrible grammar in this one. <laughs> uh, this is an attempt to get you to call the number and then, ha- then give them access to your PC. Yeah. So, or, or your credit card. Or, or your credit card, yeah. yeah. Right. Because, and because they, even if you um, – they could say, oh, gosh, uh, well, in order to process your refund, we'll have to ha- – we need your credit card number. Right. Right. And, and off you go. Yep. Uh, you know, I want to get a burner phone. Uh, just to call these guys, just call these numbers and see what happens. But I don't <laughs> okay. want to use my regular phone because I don't want them calling me back on that number. Yeah. Couldn't you get a, like a Google Voice account? That I would, could. That would work. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Chad and Jen for sending this in to us. We do appreciate it. Once again, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at the cyberwire.com. We were talking about making users into an asset for security professionals. Simply put, users want to do the right thing. They're often just lacking the knowledge to do so. 
That's one of the reasons Knowbefore has released Security Coach, a real-time security coaching tool that takes alerts from your existing security stack and sends immediate coaching to users who've taken risky actions. For example, imagine a user has visited a high-risk website or tried to open a document containing malware. Existing security tools will likely block that action, but the user might not understand why. Security Coach analyzes these alerts and provides users with relevant security tips via email or Slack, coaching them on why the action they just took was risky. Help users learn from their mistakes and strengthen your organization's security culture with Security Coach. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash security coach. That's knowbefore.com slash security coach. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with a gentleman who goes by the name of Bennett, mm-hmm. uh, just a single name, like Madonna or right. Cher. Or Foster uh, <laughs> from Fox. <Zero laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> um, but he is the chief customer officer at a company called Signified, and they recently published a report on uh, a fraud ring. So here's my conversation with Bennett. The scale of this particular attack is, you know, close to a billion. Um, it's, you know, it's rounding to, the, to a billion we originally estimated at about 660 million in actual successful attempts across the e-commerce industry in the USA in Q3, Q4 of, of calendar 22. So during the holiday period and, and ramping up to it. So that, that size is pretty eye popping. And so that's a big reason that we wanted to share our learnings of this to, to help the broader, you know, infosec community understand what this meant and, and how to maybe address it. Well, can you describe to us what's going on here? What, what exactly is uh, this fraud? Yeah, it's really interesting because it's it's not super novel in the, the worldwide scope of fraudulent attempts in payments or e-commerce or consumer-facing you know, financial instruments, but it is relatively unique targeting um, the United States of America and specifically consumer deliveries related there up into the holiday season. So Signified operates uh, worldwide, and we, we've seen these kind of attacks in a couple other places. In Latin America, especially, um, we've seen these kind of brute force attacks. And then in the United States, we've seen them before at much larger um, order values for things like gold um, or cryptocurrency, things that are closer to fiat currency. And so a couple things that that really made us drawn to this were that it was targeting kind of our e-commerce merchants, the you know kind of our bread and butter where we started, um, and using very focused, deliberate, and broad-based attacks um, that are at the call it very boring two hundred dollar average order value. Think AirPods, right? From that perspective, mm. something that people want to buy for the holidays, you want to receive as a gift. You as a consumer are shopping for a deal online. You're like, man, you know, inflation's really high. I want to try to get a good deal. I find a site that has good reviews. They have a 25% off on the latest model. Apple's not offering any discounts directly on that model. How can this be? But the reviews are so good. All right. I as a consumer, I'm going to buy that. The fraudsters take that order. They go use stolen financial information. 
They buy that from a legitimate retailer with that stolen financial information from a irrelevant third party member who's going to file the chargeback eventually. And then the original consumer who wants that 25% off receives actual AirPods and the fraudsters pocket the, the profit from that. So it's, it's actually very sophisticated in, in a triangulation perspective. And there, there's some nuances and it gets even more complex, but that's ultimately what we were able to deduce was happening here. And who ultimately loses out here? I mean, is it the merchants that the fraudsters are buying the product from that eventually get that charge back? That's exactly correct. So in a card not present environment, the onus for protecting against fraudulent financial instruments um, usually falls on the retailer, um, depending on the payment instrument type. And that's definitely the case with credit card payments. Now, your report points out that the success of this group, and as you said, they're, they're inching up uh, near a billion dollars of volume here. Um, you know, that's a lot. It, what, what do you suppose is, uh, is the reason for their success here? Yeah. So to put this into context, we, we estimate that the attempts are over three and a half billion at this point. So if you're, if you're thinking about a success rate, um, you know, call it 20% success rate, right? In terms of getting through, um, across all of e-commerce. Our clients, thankfully, we were able to, to, to blunt some of that. But the reason that they've been successful is they're targeting these items that retailers want to sell and they're targeting items, ranges and very clearly, obviously gifting type activities ahead of the holidays on order values that normally do not receive scrutiny. So if you think about a retailer that maybe has an average order value of 500 bucks, right? For example, so maybe a, you know, a consumer electronics provider. Mm. It, someone who has, is buying a cart of $100, $150, $200, that's below your median, it's below your average, it's below your hottest items. If you have one of the you know, more um, you know, antiquated systems in place where you have human beings taking a look at orders, those human experts are going to be focusing on your big ticket items because that's historically where fraud has been more prevalent in the United States. So I think that's a big reason of success is, is that the fraudsters reverse engineered the, the kind of basic elements of defense that, are, that have been deployed in e-commerce. And then there's a whole level of sophistication once they found any le- measure of, of um, kind of pushback or the ability to, to deflect the attacks. But I think at its root, it's they seem to really understand how the retailers have been protecting themselves and saying, okay, well, if you built a fence around this or you've, you've put a lock key on this piece, well, I'll just go around to the other side door. So what are the red flags for the retailers themselves? Are, are there any things that they can you know, ha- have their radar up for? Yes, absolutely. So the, the, th- the key things to be looking at are high purchase velocity. Um, and so that means, for example, let, let's say, for example, like we're, we're talking about a, you know, a, a, a top of the line, um, you know, gadget that, that people want to get. It's very normal for there to be higher purchase velocity, more orders related to that ahead of the holidays. So again, the fraudsters kind of know that. And the key to looking at and determining if you have an issue is, are there many types of people with the same names, with the same emails, with the same IPs? You need to take a look at kind of a, a holistic uh, graph of the types of orders that are coming in and saying, gosh, we, we, we didn't used to get so many orders going to Portland. 
But now the Portland orders are up 10,000%. Portland is a known reshipper hub, for example. So there's all kinds of things like that where you can slice and dice the data, regardless of the type of systems you have, and say, okay, all right, this piece of my business has really dramatically changed. Let's take a look at that. As soon as the fraudsters developed any sense that the, the retailers were pushing back and blocking their orders, they would kind of up-level the agents on their side that were um, you know, targeting that site. And they'd start little things like address manipulation, or they, they change things like um, purposely trying to confuse and bypass the, the security systems that would come in place. So I, I think one other, stepping back a little bit, the, the United States has not really faced a kind of brute force, broad-based attack like this, where there are human beings that are trained on what to do in, let's call it a call center, right, that have been organized and trained on, hey, th- this particular site will allow you to address, manipulate kind of the delivery address in a way that will confuse its fraud systems and allow the order to go through. Here are the 10 ways that you should try that. Go through this playbook. And just as a customer service agent, you know, might legitimately have a playbook and a flowchart to go through, that is that has been built by people who know what they're doing and then given to an army of human beings and said, okay, when you encounter this resistance, go to flowchart 2B and execute this playbook. Okay, report back on whether or not that's successful or not. Okay, rinse and repeat. So I, I think that the, the, the key is as soon as the retailers identify kind of this, um, you know, uh, larger amount of orders with kind of any abnormal um, elements related to them, followed by chargebacks. You need to raise the 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 kind of the gates up and really start paying more attention to those orders. The fraudsters seem very focused because they are ultimately selling it to end consumers on particular products that are selling very well. So we've seen a lot of people who may not have the most sophisticated defenses be somewhat helpful. Um, in deflecting this attack by targeting their their highest um, you know value items, that's the exact dangerous thing to do when you're trying to make sales. So there's obviously a balancing act there, but that, that's kind of the success that we've seen. Is it fair to say that one of the weak links in this chain here is the credit card companies themselves? That seems to me that's really the the main thing that's being exploited here. Well, you, you could say that, that the financial instrument itself, right, is, is kind of the root cause. Um, it is a, a necessary but not sufficient condition, I think. And, and here's my point on that. If, if someone has compromised a credit card and all they've compromised is a credit card, the, the credit card company actually, it's, it's fairly easy to, to stop that after maybe the first second attempt, right? So here's what we're finding though. This, this fraud ring is much more sophisticated where they, they don't just have the financial instrument. They know the emails, they know the passwords, they, they know the addresses. Depending on the order size, they might be using, for example, houses that have recently sold that they know don't have anybody at where they can open a credit facility and then also ha- confirm that information and then have that house become a place where mules can go to pick up the orders themselves to then get to the end consumer. So the, the level of sophistication is going much beyond just the payment instrument itself. So I, I hear you. It's like, gosh, if, if, if the payment instrument were more secure, would that help? It, it would, of course. Yes, I'm not going to say that it's not. But um, I, I, I do believe that there's a lot more going on here and, and kind of 
taking a little bit of a step back, I think disrespecting the fraud ring or their level of sophistication is a big part of the problem, right? And so hmm. what, one thing that I like to do is, is, is think of these folks as a business and a sophisticated business that has very clear cogs and profit margins. And, you know, the, the, the best fraud ring is going to have the most profit to invest back in. I, I kind of look at it a little bit more holistically, personally, but you're absolutely right, of course. Yes, in, in many ways, yes, the, the, the credit card companies or whatever payment instrument could be offering a more secure payment instrument. With a huge caveat, consumers, especially in America, do not want the friction um, imposed by a more, quote-unquote, more secure payment instrument. Do we know who's behind this? What part of the world they're, they're coming from? Absolutely, yeah. So this particular very sophisticated fraud ring is is based in Southeast Asia, um, and 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 I, I note that I I believe based on the information that we have and that um, you know many of our colleagues um, in the industry have is that this is a this is kind of a very well coordinated, unclear yet if it's cell you know kind of structure or if it is really more hierarchical like a corporate structure but it is very well organized um, um, regardless of the the actual pieces we do know a little bit about the contours we are exploring ways to to stop it at its root right from that perspective um, and and definitely they are they are based in, in that Vietnam uh, or Thailand is kind of our, our current best um, guess. So what are your recommendations then for, for folks to best protect themselves against this? Yeah, so I think that the first thing is chargebacks are a very lagging indicator, right? And so chargebacks from the, the, the person who has had their financial instrument stolen and used in this triangulation um, is, is going to notice this on their credit card statement you know, at most same day, but by the, by the, and, and that sounds fast, right? But because <laughs> this is a, because this is a brute force attack, we're talking about literal hundreds of orders being placed within hours, right? That's how you get to these really large numbers. And with same day shipping or, you know, release before holidays and that pressure to get the goods out the door, what we're finding is that, you know, hours is too long. Right. Um, so so chargebacks is too late. So I, I think that there really needs to be either a very excellent team with with excellent tools that is, you know, kind of constantly monitoring fluctuations and traffic patterns and, and kind of sorting like, hey, yes, is this 10,000 percent increase to, to Miami a problem or not? Or is that sale just happened to be really you know, successful? Those types of questions are, are very hard to answer in real time. So I, I suggest adopting technology, um, you know, machine learning in the space obviously works, something that can, that can sift through the, the signal and noise and, and make sure that you're focusing on the right things, at least um, if it's not making the decisions for you. Joe, what do you think? This ring is getting close to a billion dollars in recognized fraud. Mm-hmm. Dave, do you think that um, Signify has found all of the fraud in this? Uh, highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. <laughs> I think these guys may have gotten away with more than a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, interesting that it's really not new novel techniques. Uh, it, this reminds me very much of the scam that we were talking about in Pakistan with the Amazon uh 
opening up services in Pakistan. Right, right. I think this is the same kind of thing. You remember how we were terribly confused by that? Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a listener write in and tell us about it, and, and it sounds almost exactly like what Ben is describing here. Huh. Interesting that they're not really novel techniques, right? They're, yeah. They're just using the... I, I like that Bennett describes this as a brute force attack. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. They're just trying things until it works. And I often say, my favorite kind of force is brute force, right? <laughs> um, it's it's remarkably effective. Uh, and it it shouldn't be as remarkably effective in in a lot of things. But here, I don't know how you uh, defend against it without using... Uh, techniques that Bennett is describing, which is like uh, artificial intelligence and and buying a product and helping, uh, you know, or because you're trying to sell things, mm-hmm. right? You're trying to make that happen. And as the as the victim organization here, you you would lose out. And if these guys target your organization to find a vulnerability, you could lose big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting that in the U.S. these guys are going for more fungible things like gold, gold, uh, gold bars and things like that. Mm-hmm. I I think that's really fascinating. Um, what what makes it okay to do that in the U.S. but not Latin America? Is it because the U.S. has a higher, um, uh, you know, uh, per capita income? That when someone sends a gold bar to a house in, let's say, Portland, Oregon, which is where he was talking about there being a lot of reshipping mm-hmm. around the area, that that's less suspicious than uh, somebody in Ecuador ordering, ordering one? Mm. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I'd like to know why that is the case. I think it, and that's why it's fascinating because it poses a question to me. I wonder if it's just, it could be as simple as the proliferation of cash for gold shops all right. over. <laughs> It's easy it, to, to turn around. It's easy to launder gold. Yeah, that might be, that's a good point, Dave. It might be because we have those cash for gold gold shops around here, and, and those things don't exist in other countries. Yeah. Uh, same with payday loans. I don't know if payday loans exist in the other country, but we in other countries, but we have them all over the place here, mm-hmm. and uh, they are terrible, terrible organizations. This scam also kind of reminds me of crypto jacking. Hmm. Uh, in crypto jacking, I install some malware on somebody's computer that does all the crypto mining for me and it costs them money to do that for me. Uh, so it's like changing the business model to an all, all cat or an all profit business model here. They don't make it all profit because they're, they are a large organization and they have to pay people, Mm -hmm. but they do eliminate the cost of goods sold totally eliminated. Yeah. They're essentially fencing stolen goods is what's going on here. Right. Um, they attempted over $3 billion and they take home almost $1 billion in, uh, in business. So that means they have like a, a, a 33% success rate with every one of these orders they place. Hmm. So, in order, so when they get a customer order in, they, uh, they have to try three times to get that order fulfilled mm-hmm. at no cost other than the time and effort it takes to do it. And it pays off. And it pays off, right. Um, these guys are very adaptive. They have that reshipping operation that he talks about. Yeah, uh, that involves uh, a lot of a lot of legwork here in the U.S. Right? Mm-hmm. If, if if this ring is being operated out of Southeast Asia, they still have some operations here in the U.S. Uh, and I think those those operations are are susceptible to mm-hmm. uh, law enforcement. Yeah, and. You know, it would be interesting to have the uh, the federal authorities involved in this find a couple of these people. Uh, you know, if you're just a porch pirate and the FBI arrests you, I can imagine that being a very terrifying situation. 
You know, <laughs> yeah. you know it's a bad day. Right, it's a bad day. <laughs> right. You know, you're you're expecting to to interact with local law enforcement, and next thing is somebody taking you to an airport and putting you on a plane to fly you to Washington in custody. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be uh, that would be very intimidating. But uh, you know, I'm not all for the uh, for the intimidation of of by law enforcement. I don't I don't want to say that I'm doing that. But at the same point in time, the, these guys are running a, a huge operation that's damaging businesses. Uh, particularly in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Finally, the last thing I want to say is that chargebacks are slow. Uh, By the time you get notification that a chargeback has happened, that order has not only shipped, but it has has shipped to the first place that it was going to get shipped to, been picked up by a porch pirate, repackaged, shipped out to the customer. The customer has had it probably for at least two weeks Mm -hmm. before you even see that the chargeback has occurred. Yeah. As a fraudulent account, as a fraudulent charge. So it's not a really good indicator. You're going to have to do something more on this. Yeah. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, noticing these trends or accept the loss. I don't know. Maybe you accept the risk. I, I don't think that's a good, a good example because I think it sounds like once these guys find out that you're vulnerable to this kind of attack, they just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Bennett for taking the time for us. Again, he is the chief customer officer at Signified, and we do appreciate him taking the time for us. We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are experts in helping users do the right thing through new school security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.